Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action. Our podcast is dedicated to parents of children struggling with the effects of trauma and attachment disorders and the caseworkers, coordinators, and other professionals who support them. Your host, Karen Doyle Buckwalter, will introduce you to Dr. John Balin. Dr. Balin received his doctorate in clinical psychology and has been working in the mental health field for 35 years. For the past 20 years, while continuing his clinical practice, he has immersed himself in the study of neuroscience and in teaching mental health practitioners about the brain. Dr. Balin will discuss the science of developmental trauma and its impact on the brains of both children and infants. And now your host, Karen Doyle Buckwalter. So I am here today with Dr. Jonathan Balin, who contributed a chapter to the Attachment Theory in Action book. And his chapter was more dense than some of the chapters because it was about the brain. And right. Yeah. And we're so, so glad that, that you were willing to do that. And um, so, so Dr. Balin, why don't you just share a little bit about your background? I know you're a psychologist, but if you'd share a little bit. Sure, Karen. Well, I'm a clinical psychologist. I always say that because I'm not a... Um, neuroscientist or a um, or even a neuropsychologist. So I, I've been uh, doing therapy as a clinical psychologist with kids and families for, oh, I hate to think maybe close to 40 years. And um, I'm, I've always been, I've, I've always been um, both curious and um, dissatisfied with what we know in this field. I've, I've never, I, I, as I've worked as a therapist, I've never felt that I or our field really has a, a, a deep enough understanding of, of the complexity of things that we're dealing with. So I've always been searching to, to know more, even, even as mm-hmm. I've plowed ahead with the, doing the work. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I was always learning, you know, what, what was coming down the pike in terms of models of therapy. And when the brain science um, really started to explode more, and also when my children left the nest, because I had time to, to, to study, and this was about 20 years ago, I, I, I really started reading and um, absorbing the, the the uh, brain research, it it really became a daily practice, I guess you could say a a nice obsession um, (laughs) because it really has been. So literally for the past 20 years, I I have just every every day pretty much been thinking about reading the brain science and always with the, the purpose of trying to figure out and apply it, apply that knowledge to the clinical work. And so so that's just been an ongoing project for me. You know, then about, uh, then about 10 years ago, of course, I met, started collaborating with Daniel Hughes. Yes. Where we got real serious about the intersection between the, you know, the attachment focused therapy processes and, and my interest in what was going on in the brain and how we could uh, really, you know, close, bridge those 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 two um, ways of, of of knowing and doing. Yeah. Very good, and mm-hmm. I think some 
times maybe, and maybe this is what you're speaking to a little bit, you know, therapy is more of a soft science compared to medicine and other disciplines um, in terms of what we're, we're trying to do. We just don't yeah. have as much, as much yeah. scientific data. So it sounds like you were taking all the information that was coming out in the brain and trying to synthesize that into, you know, what does that mean in therapy? Yes, you know, that it, not all the brain science because it's so vast, you know, but the brain science that had to do with our social, emotional, um, and relational processes. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think we are, we're, we're, we're still a young field in, in terms of our depth of knowledge about what we're, you know, what we're trying to understand and what we're trying to help people to to do and to change because because we deal with the whole person we're dealing with the full complexity you know most medical disciplines are dealing with you know very specialized areas of knowledge and they and they you know they they do have deeper knowledge probably they know more in some ways about how the heart works and the liver works and the right. stomach works than we know about how how the brain and body and people work so it makes yeah. sense that we would be um you know, on a slower trajectory to really get our minds around all that we're trying to understand the whole person. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so thinking about with the theme of the book being attachment theory, are there some pieces that you would very specifically speak to related to attachment theory and how that's related to the brain and how we conduct therapy in cases where there have been significant attachment disruptions mm-hmm. or relational trauma, developmental trauma, those yeah. issues. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's a big question and a good one. <laughs> um, where would I start? I, I think I, I think I'd start with um, in, in terms of the, brain research, you know, the sort of the, the science of developmental trauma. Uh, uh, it's very useful to start with what that research is telling us about how early experience affects the way a child, an infant's brain is adapting to the, the, to the world that it, it now finds itself in. And when children, what that research is saying, from what I can uh, see, the way I in- interpret it, what that research is saying is that when children um, first encounter harsh, um, a harsh world, when their first sensory experiences with caregivers are painful, uh, frightening, um, um, not comforting, when there's not a go-to soothing companion, um, what the, what would be happening in the child's brain is that 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 kind of poor care, those those kinds of um, very stressful experiences, would be activating the part of a child's brain that's de- devoted to um, um, self-defense. 
so that what's happening in a child's brain in that situation is that the, the child's brain is getting dedicated to and getting very good at um, using the circuitry that's developing that we would use throughout life to protect ourselves from harm and in a sense to play defense. That's like the brain's alarm and defense system. And so the, and in some ways the brain is the brain development, it, 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 their choices that are being made in, a, in an environment that's um, nurturing in a good care environment the brain's going to uh, going to adapt more to living in a caring world by um, growing um, the parts of the brain and the circuits in the brain that we use for social engagement to mm-hmm. connect with people when we feel safe. So, so if you just took two children, even if you took identical twins, and they separated at birth, one in a good care environment, one in a poor care, with exactly the same genetic makeup, their brains would develop quite quite differently in response to those early environments. And because that such because that early developmental period has so much to do with not just learning, but the brain is structuring itself. Um, it's, that these processes are very enduring. Mm-hmm. So when the child starts that life dedicating brain development to playing defense and has an underdeveloped social engagement system, if you use Stephen Cordes's term here, it's, it's not a no-brainer to change that brain from a defensive brain to a trusting brain. It, it really takes some doing to help a child make that journey in neurobiological terms from deep mistrust to, to trust. They really have to have experiences which help them change their brains. So one of the things I did, Karen, particularly in working with Dan, Dan Hughes, is develop a concept of blocked, blocked trust and blocked care. Um, and I like those concepts. They're simple, but they capture the block trust idea, I think, captures the idea that children have are dedicating their early development to learning uh, to cope through um, mistrust, through being hypervigilant, wary of other people. And the, and the concept of block care, which I really came to first because I was thinking more about the caregiver side of it was looking at the, the effects of, the, of stress on caregivers and, and the effects on the neurobiology of the care system. Yeah, so what I, got really, what I get really interested in is the interplay you know, between the kid's brain, the caregiver's brain, and so many cases, so many situations that I would see clinically that I would describe as mutual defense societies. Where the where a child with blocked trust is in the care of now a new caregiver, often out you know out, not with the biological parents, with a new caregiver who has every intention of being a loving, nurturing parent, but is encountering um, a child who doesn't know yet how to be a partner in the kind of reciprocal relationship that makes it so much easier to have good connections and form those attachment bonds. So 
So how does a caregiver in the face of that somehow sustain their caring and not go into block care? I think that's that's a mouthful. No, but that concept, um, well, first of all, let me say thank you for explaining that. And that's that's why we all love you, Dr. Bailey. <laughs> take these very, very complex things and, and bring them um, into practical yes. information that we yeah, need. Yeah, great. And that's what I hope to do. Yes. And I think, you know, when oh, there's so many things I'd like to ask. Yeah, about. yeah, yeah. I'm trying to organize my thoughts. Sure. Um, when you, I like the use, and of course, it's the correct use of the word adaptive. Yes. Because even though it's not optimal, it is adaptive. And it is adaptive. And it's really uh, amazing that a child, you know, even a one-year-old that we're seeing in a strange situation is having a certain pattern of responding to their caregiver based yeah. on what their brain has learned about the caregiver. Um, but I like that word because I think so often um, therapists and parents can get caught up in, you know, this is uh, just really their brain's okay, but they're doing this because, yeah. you know, they, 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 exactly. they want to me. Um, yeah. And so at the same time, although it's not optimal development, it was adaptive and it, yeah. it was the best the brain could do at the time. Um, yes. Yes. And then your concept of blocked care, I have used over and over I think it really helps to remove some of the shame for parents yes. uh, who feel like they're being judged, that they're seen as mean or cold or distant with their children. Yeah, when well, that's exactly what they intended not to right. not to be. And I, I think I'd like to even hear some comment about um, the parents' brain chemistry is changing too. And it's yeah. not releasing the same chemicals, dopamine or, or whichever ones we would talk about, that lead to you falling in love and connecting. Yeah. Them. Well, you know, there's a whole neurobiology of caregiving. In fact, I when I the first book that Dan and I wrote, you know, was about was called brain-based parenting because we, we were really looking at this neuroscience of caregiving what, what's going on in the brain of a caregiver from a from a uh, a rodent mom and dad uh, well rodent dads don't do much parenting rodent moms to to humans and so what what i learned was that in mammals of all those levels of complexity from the little ones to humans um that we they what evolved was a caregiving brain system that would be activated uh, in in the mothers it would it would start to be activated by being pregnant and the chemistry of pregnancy and oxytocin for example would be a big part of that because oxytocin level rises during pregnancy and then the job of the baby whether it's a baby rat or a, a baby kid would be to be re re responsive um, to the mother uh, both, both by making, um, you know, uh, delightful, positive sounds and by making distressful sounds to let the mother know 
when they're in distress and, and in need. So there's this, so what evolved with this lovely um, 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 dyadic interplay in all mammals between um, the caregiving system in the parent and the attachment system in the child. Mm-hmm. And those two, they, those evolved to work together so that, so that the child or the, the infant and the parent were um, activating each other's brains in a way that would promote this, this bonding and this safe attachment if, 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 if things were going well. So just so, the opposite yeah. of a mutual defense society. I'm sorry. Yeah, exactly. It's the opposite of the mutual defense society. So here we get kids now who adaptively are in chronic defensive mode. And it is so important to understand that as adaptive because if, because if I'm going to learn to have compassion for those kids and, and have a story about them that's going to help me sustain my caring for them, I've got to understand that the origins of their defensiveness were, were adaptive and necessary. But yeah. So, yeah. So this, this is this dyadic dance of caregiving and, and attaching is the opposite of the mutual defense society. So I, I think a lot of what we're, when we're doing the therapy, we're trying to help restore that dyadic interplay not just help the child attach, but help the caregiver, you know, have, get that, keep keep that caregiving system on and that can be but what can happen of course so naturally is when you whenever you're interacting with another person who is dissing you disrespecting you fending off your efforts to come close it's naturally going to trigger your own defense system yeah so now there's this real high risk it's very difficult to not start to go into defensive mode as an adult. And when you start to go there, you, you literally are shutting off the caregiving system, that, that, that other neurobiological system, which is devoted to being open and caring. You, you sort of can't be in both systems at once. You can flip back and forth between the two, but if you're starting to go into defensive mode because this child is triggering that in you, that's where the risk for blocking the the care giving the caring feelings the caring state of mind the all the nurturing behaviors that system can start to get suppressed and that's what i meant by block care yeah and in some sense that's an adaptive thing (laughs) that the adults doing it's self-protection but of course it leads to mutual defense society sorry that's okay. I just wanted to ask you what you have seen as the most effective clinical strategies to help parents with blocked care. Yeah. Anybody listening to this, whether it's a parent or a clinician, probably knows or has seen or felt this in the room mm-hmm. and knows yes. what you're talking about. Yes. What have you seen in your own practice yeah. um, and, and in working with others that's helped with this? Yeah. Well, I, I think the first thing that's essential that, that, the, uh, that the parents need, the caregivers need, is the kind of compassion and empathic and understanding response to, to 
the, to what they may be experiencing is some level of block care that the children need from the parent. So I, I find that what I need to do as a therapist is put aside my agenda initially of trying to steer the parent towards, you know, the kind of nurturing, compassionate care that I think the kids need to put aside that agenda initially so that I can help the parents feel safe with me and put some trust in me because I can listen and understand and have empathy for the stress that they're experiencing. And I, and I want to help the parents to be, feel safe telling me the, the worst, <laughs> the, the worst of it, which, which could be, I, I, I now hate this child. I, I wish I'd never had this child. Um, I never thought I'd feel this way. I feel horrible about it. I feel angry. I feel guilty. I, I want my first agenda, I think, is to create a safe relationship with me for parents to, um, you, you know, to feel to feel safe with what they're experiencing. So in a way, it's paralleling. I think it's parallel work. And, I, and it has to be done with the caregivers without the kids in the room. You know, in the old days when I was learning family therapy, it was, uh, well, uh, let's throw everybody in the room together and we'll do, you know, whatever we're doing, structural things and move move people and work on relationships. I don't do that in this model. I really want to, I particularly want to give the parents, the caregivers a chance without the kid um, there triggering that defensiveness. I want to give them a chance to develop um, a, a, a safe and trusting relationship with me because to me the pri- often the key to the attachment work of course is the caregivers and if I can't help the caregivers often make a very huge shift from a really stressed out often defensive state to an open and engaged compassionate state the possibilities of change in the relationship are not so great so yeah. I, I really look at that as as that work with the caregivers is so core and essential to the process of, of change and attachment therapy. Now I can already predict what some yeah. who are listening yeah saying to themselves yeah. because I get this question when I teach therapy and when I teach about yes. this topic. What about parents who don't want to do that? They're like, what? You know, I, you need to help my kid. I mean, this isn't about me and we're in a crisis and I don't want to sit around talking to you. You need to help my child. Um, Cause I, I get this pushback a lot when I yeah. talk about this. Yeah. Uh, so what do you say to, to a therapist who, who says that? Mm. Well, I, I get that too. And I hear that. Um, here, here's what I say, or here's what I think I should say. (laughs) Um, yeah, expect to hear that. Very few parents would come in ready to, um, do the kind of, of enriched, um, 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 care that, that we'd like them to be able to do with these very complicated kids. 
So I'm, I'm always, I'm, I'm, you know, I'd be ready, first of all, to have a parent come in with some level of block care and to take on the job of working, working through and developing the, uh, that trusting relationship with that parent. And so part of developing trust is being able to say, I, I, I really want to be helpful. And I know that uh, if I just see your child and don't work with you, um, there's the likelihood of things getting better and changing are not, are not so good, because I really do believe that. So sometimes part of building trust is saying with some confidence, I really, I want to be helpful and I don't want to waste your time by, by making you think that I can just talk with your child and, and occasionally get a little information from you and really help things to change. So in some ways it's, it's knowing that and believing that model and at the same time being ready to really listen and be very empathic with the pain that those parents are, are feeling. You know, the parents are blocking their pain often in the same way that the kids do. And, 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 and one of the goals of building that trust is to helping them feel safe enough to start to talk about some of the pain and, and some of the grief, I think, that comes along with having... Um, temporarily lost their love for the, for these kids. Mm -hmm. So in some ways it's having the confidence that you're, 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 you're using an understanding about what's needed for change to take a pretty firm uh, stance about how you can be helpful and how you can't be helpful along with deep empathy for what the parent is experiencing. It's some combination of those Two things, I think, Karen. I hope that makes some sense. Yes, it does make a lot of sense. And, mm -hmm. and I, I agree with everything you're saying. And I think also that, um, you know, if we're going to look at DDP and PACE, for example, I think mm -hmm. we have as uh, professionals a lot easier time delivering playful, accepting, curious, empathic to the child. To the kids, yeah. <laughs> and can easily forget and become frustrated and start thinking, look, you're the adult, you know. Exactly. Like, step up to the plate here. Yeah, I know and, that feeling. <laughs> and yes, and we, 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 like you're saying, we have to overcome that also in ourselves. So we can Yes, I think that, that probably... I, bingo. I think that's the biggest challenge for therapists is to just not leapfrog over that challenge of being able to be as compassionate with the adult as you want them to be with the child. And it is much easier often to align with the child because that's what we do. I mean, we, you know, we empathize more easily with the little person. And I, I, exactly, Karen, I think we have to override our natural inclination to expect the adults to just, you know, do what they need to do. And we have to let go of that and be paceful, if we're using that model, uh, with them in the same way that, we, and, and so, you know, I think they have to experience 
here's part of it is you can't teach pace psychoeducationally, not at first. People have to have a chance to experience um, you being paceful with them. And often we're working with parents. A lot of times there are parents who have never experienced nurturing themselves. And it would be like speaking Greek, you know, uh, to talk about a nurturing way of being with the child with some of the parents who, so they have to have a taste of visceral experience of what it's like to be understood. I often have parents who will cry um, and tear up if I am able to uh, empathize with and not be judgmental at all about what they're experiencing. And I can see it's often the first time that they've, they've ever experienced somebody um, being empathic with them. So it's experiential. That's the other thing I would say to the therapist is it, it ha it's an experiential process with the parents, not just psychoeducation. You can't just rely on, uh, I'm going to teach you how to do it kind of stance. Right. It, yeah. That makes sense. You have to give them that experience. Mm -hmm. um, it's when I did my training in child parent psychotherapy. Mm -hmm. I remember Patricia Van Horn, who's, who's who's gone now, but she said, "I have found it harder to teach child parent psychotherapy to child therapists." than therapists who are accustomed to working with adults. Ah, and, yeah. you know, of course, many of us in the room have worked with children a lot yeah. of our career. And yes. I just, when she said that, really perked up uh, and thought, wow. You know, and I think it's because of the very thing that we're talking about right now. Yeah, yes. And it's a really I, good subject. <laughs> yeah, and I yeah. also think it requires um, knowing our own issues and our own history and having support because we can be triggered by the parent's behavior towards the child, right? So That can be, yeah. yeah right? <laughs> so, so it all has to, we all have to be keeping our, our stuff in check here. Um, it's a lot to juggle in the room, the therapist, the child, and the parent. All of us. It is. It's which is why initially, um, you know, I want to I want to separate them because yeah. I can't I can't I can't do that kind of trust building and you know empathic work with a parent who has a kid in her face triggering that defensiveness in the room in the moment. I just I just can't do it. So, yeah. Yeah. So I I like to divide them up with the goal of then bringing them together when a parent, when a parent is trusting me and I like this and, and you know, I'm following a lot of DDP model, but when, a, when I've gained a parent's trust and, and a contract with them that says, we, are you willing to let me guide you and coach you some in this way of, of, of parenting? If we can get to that point, that's when I want kid in the room. Good. Yeah. You know, I think that's um, a great spot for us to kind of wind yeah. up because I think all right, we got to do it. <laughs> but um, I, I, 
we we hear a lot about what the children need and so i'm very excited that this discussion has gone in the direction of understanding the parents because as you said if we can't understand and give empathy for them they're not going to be able to participate in the process like they say child parent psychotherapy i think what's jury paul said do unto others you would have them do unto others yeah so you know needing to experience it from us too yeah. so thank you so much for your time I know oh thank you Karen. Um, thanks for all you're doing yes and, and i want people to know about your wonderful books is amazon is that the place the best place to get yeah probably the simplest place to go yeah. all right yes um because because they're wonderful and so helpful so thank you so much all right Karen. good talking to you Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please follow our site, TraumaAttachmentCenter.com, or subscribe to our iTunes channel for future podcasts. If you enjoyed our broadcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, log on to TraumaAttachmentCenter.com. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, developmental trauma, and attachment theory.